Just over 15 years ago, a friend of mine brought me to Waterville in South Kerry. The last thing I expected to find there was a connection to one of the greatest film stars the world has ever known, Charlie Chaplin. We were hiding behind a few cars that were in Waterville at the time, and next thing Charlie came. We couldn't believe it that we could, that was the same man at all. We thought we should see the man with the bowler hat and the turn out things and the cane. <laughs> We were very disappointed. He was an ordinary man to us. We didn't know because there was no communication with the outside world. That if we hadn't even the radio, hardly like our, our films, only the silent films. That him, we thought we were looking at him in the films, like, and we thought we should see the same man. We were very disappointed. Couldn't figure it out. <laughs> I'd say there isn't a day goes by without ten or eleven tourists coming in to either take a picture of Charlie Chaplin or to ask me about him, because he was the first movie star. He is a huge, huge draw to Waterville. Huge. On the 26th of the 7th, 1960, for a start, he said, best wishes and thank you, Charlie Chaplin. And he has himself, ling, 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 <laughs> a drawing of himself there. I just captured him, I suppose, 26th of the 7th, 1960, so that was it. What drew my father to Ireland was my mother, with a name like Una O'Neill. She was a girl born in the States, and uh, she obviously wanted to know her country. And he grew to love it, and we all loved it. I mean, it was our holidays. Our holidays were always in Waterville. On page 473 of Charles Chaplin's autobiography, a short two lines point to a very special relationship. It reads, During the Easter holidays, we take the children to the south of Ireland. This is something that the whole family looks forward to every year. That short little piece points to a special relationship of an untold Chaplin story, one of Kerry and the Tramp. Nina on the M7 en route at the moment towards Limerick and then heading down uh, through Adair towards Kerry. So I suppose this is just a start of a journey to just try and uncover what it was that brought this global superstar all the way down to Waterville to spend a lot of his time there fishing. This was in quiet solitude away from, well, pretty much everything that he had become accustomed to. Well, as you come into uh, the Butler Arms Hotel, one of the first areas that greets you is the Chaplain Lounge, and you'll see a plaque on the wall that reads, this lounge has been named the Chaplain Lounge to commemorate the many holidays which Charlie Chaplin and his family spent in the Butler Arms Hotel in the 60s and early 70s. So it's a nice uh, honour, and it's the first thing that greets you when you do come into the hotel. The hotel is over 140 years old. It was originally built as a coach house or an in-house. Louise Huggard is the fourth generation of her family to run the hotel in Waterville. 
He originally came to Kerry just on a vacation and he drove from Killarney with his family and he was originally driving towards Sneem. And he stopped in Waterville and he noticed the hotel and he thought it looked lovely and he thought the village was very quaint. So he came into the Butler Arms and at the time there was an old lady working at reception called Miss Lawless. She did everything in the hotel. She was practically ran the hotel. So when he came and asked her for a room, she told him that the hotel was full and she's sorry, she had no rooms available. So he left and she proceeded to tell the owner, Billy Hoggart, that Charlie Chaplin had come into the hotel looking for rooms and she told him we were full. So he said, which direction did she go? And she pointed and he got into his motor car and drove after him and told him, of course, we had rooms. And at that time, Billy Hoggart was living in the hotel with his family. So he gave up his living quarters for Charlie Chaplin and the family. They came back year after year. And they became great friends with the Hoggart family. What was the hotel like in those days? The hotel had a great social atmosphere in those days. There was a lot of generals and a lot of English staying in the hotel at the time. It wasn't like you'd come to a hotel and stay the night and do your own thing. Everybody that was in the hotel knew each other. They played a great game after dinner called Roll the Red. And the Chaplin family used to join the guests of the hotel at the time and play games with them and there was dancing and singing and everybody got involved. It was different to hotels nowadays where people were just coming and going and sightseeing or doing whatever. They all got involved. Charles Chaplin was born on the 16th of April, 1889 in East Street, Walworth in London. Childhood in this late Victorian era quickly descended into extreme poverty, Charles and his older half-brother, Sidney. Although his parents were both music hall performers, they separated before he was three, and then his mother's career fell apart as she suffered a permanent mental breakdown. The result was long periods in workhouses and institutions for destitute children. Charles was a little over six years old. Just by the roadside in Waterville stands the statue of Charlie Chaplin. The inscription on the stone that's beside it reads, For the man who made the movies speak in the hearts of millions. Charlie spent many years in our midst as a welcome and humble guest and friend to many. Are you surprised to see a statue of Charlie Chaplin here in Ireland? Uh, yes, uh, we come from Germany and we make a tour to uh, today here around of Kerry and I knew uh, that Charlie Chaplin lived in the United States and in the beginning of the 50s of the last century he had to go to Switzerland because of uh, political uh, ideas and so I'm surprised that he was here. My name's uh, Alan Ryan Hall and I'm a sculptor. I've been sculpting for nearly 40 years at this stage. The community decided to honour sort of Charlie Chaplin, being on the sort of the main ring of Kerry, and they decided to honour him by having a sort of a life-size bronze sort of statue of him. A person like him, if you put him so much as on the sort of the smallest dais or the smallest plinth, even a couple of inches, it would make him a, a demigod rather than a person of the streets, a person of the people. 
And so by putting him sort of straight onto the pavement, people can link up with him, they can interact, and it seems to be working. Um, if in the golden weeks there are sort of 60, 70 coaches sort of going through Waterville, I'm pretty certain that everyone sort of stops, they spill out, they link up, they photograph, they interact with him and sort of mess around and they have sort of Charlie Chaplin and Waterville and you know, the whole of sort of South Kerry on their mind when they go back, when they sort of show their friends the sort of pictures they've taken. Art in parentheses, it's a nonsense. I mean, art is part of the myth-making industry, part of the fantasy sort of world, and so was Charlie. And I can't sort of disconnect between sort of Charlie's art and sort of, you know, artist's art and my art. And I think it sort of should work. I think sort of it should work for as many people as possible. And not in the you know, commercialisation, not the Kiss Me Quick T-shirts or the whatever funny hats. I'm talking that it sort of sh- people should be able to interact and feel familiar and friendly to their art, their local art. Chaplin was instrumental in shaping his own destiny. The young tap dancer performed in the English music halls and that led to offers of vaudeville tours. In 1910, he arrived in California for the first time, describing it as a paradise of sunshine, orange groves, vineyards and palm trees, stretching along the Pacific coast for a thousand miles. Good evening, how are you all? You're welcome here to the Butler Arms Hotel in Waterville. Hope you have a very enjoyable holiday and that the weather will be fine. Margaret O'Connor worked as a receptionist in the Butler Arms Hotel when Chaplin first visited. He didn't, didn't create any impression with me. I, I knew of him, I mean, from the silent films and all that. And I suppose he was very, I thought myself, no, he was a bit aloof. Well, then that's going back a few years, I, I, I mean, I can recall. But she was exceptionally nice, his wife, Una. Other than that, he'd never go into any conversation. At least I didn't think, I can't remember now do exactly. But I think that was uh, the set up there with him, you know. He was just different, I suppose. And uh, I mean, they come then, they go out to Lake Coran. That's the, the big lake, as they call it, you know, for fishing. And of course, there was a lot of fishing going on there. It was well, well known before he arrived that he was coming, of course, and all that. And they'd be very much on the alert. And the gillies would be all arranged, you see. The gilly is the man that'll take you out, know, know to where to go exactly. And weather permitting, of course. It isn't every day a gilly would go out, you know. And they'd get a packed lunch and uh, there was two b- bottles of stout given, you know, don't you know. And they were actually paid as well, you know. The gillies were. Just a, a, good old, a good old, you know, one. Looking at the photograph here now, I mean, he's dressed properly in it, his cravat and, you know, he looked look good sort of thing, you know. And herself, she she was petite, as you might have gathered from the photograph too. And But uh, she she was lovely and she used to have her hair tied back and, you know, hair band and all that sort of thing. I remember her more clearly because I suppose I was coming in contact with her more, possibly, because he'd be with the men folk and uh, going off fishing and, and the ghillie and all that. Why do you think Charlie Chaplin liked it here? In their own place, in their own country, possibly. He'd be walking up the street and people would be approaching him at every twist and turn. But here, he was just a private man here on a holiday, doing whatever he was wanted to do best, and nobody would sort of be encroaching on him. He was spoken highly of around here, really. The, you know, to Charlie Chapman and Charlie came here and Charlie went there, and, but there was no more about it, you know. You would never hear anything ill being spoken about him. Well, be, people, I think, maybe weren't aware of what was happening, but maybe they took him at face value. The young performer had signed for the Keystone Film Company in 1913, 
His initial salary was $150 a week. It wasn't long after his arrival that the tramp was born. Having been asked to put on a comedy makeup, Chaplin wandered through wardrobe, picking up baggy pants, big shoes, a cane, and a derby hat. He added a small moustache, which he reasoned would age him without hiding his expression. He had no idea of the character, but in that moment, the clothes and the makeup made him feel the person he was. He began to know him, and by the time he walked to the stage, he was fully born. Well, I've arrived in a very warm Madrid. I'm standing uh, right outside the Opera House, right in the centre of Madrid. And uh, right on the corner here on the third floor is an apartment block where Geraldine Chaplin, daughter of Charlie Chaplin, now lives and has done for over 32 years. Well, we were in Waterville often. I mean, every spring, a lot of summers, during a long period of, of, of time, many years. And what they often did was the children were bungled off to somewhere with the nannies called Bandoran. And my parents went to Waterville. And they'd often do this. They'd put the children over somewhere, then they'd go. And then if they liked the place, they'd bring the children. And if they didn't like the place, they'd go home and the children could continue their holiday in Bandoran or wherever it was. And Bandoran had all sorts of things that they knew that kids would like. So we were in Bandoran and then this call came, you've all got to come to Waterville. So we went to Waterville. And... My mother was like someone who had found her own place. And then my father began to really love it. He was funny. At the beginning, he was a little bit snobbish. He, he, he became very English, very British. His accent, I thought, he, Daddy, he doesn't speak like that. And then suddenly, the Irish, which is so contagious, he, was, he started to get a Kerry accent. <laughs> and, and I think, oh, uh-huh, I see, I understand. Yeah. I remember it took a long time to get to Waterville, too. We'd arrive at Shannon Airport, and it was about five hours' drive on these tiny little roads. And my father would just become ecstatic, looking at the walls, looking at the, the, the greenery, looking at the cows, the sheep, the houses. I remember there were a lot of abandoned houses and then another little house beside it, and we were told, no, because there's ghosts in that house. And he would begin with his ghost stories. He loved everything my mother loved, he was, and my father was a great romantic, and I think he felt very romantically towards my mother in Ireland. They would go for walks and drives, and he would go fishing, and we would just hang around that Butler Arms Hotel, which was a very strange, beautiful very eclectic group of people that were there. My father was fascinated with the people at the hotel because they were all the sort of people that he really admired, uh, doctors, engineers. They were kind of high-class uh, people. And he always, I think, had a complex about not having had an education. These people obviously recognized him and, and adored him and admired him. And he, he felt very at home there. We all became addicted to hot water bottles in that hotel because we'd, hot water bottles were for sick people, right? If you were sick, your nanny brought you a hot water bottle. But every night we had 
which was the greatest luxury and very exotic, hot water bottles in our beds. And my father became addicted to hot water bottles. And my sister still, my sister Josephine, she still has a hot water bottle every night, even in summer. (laughs) How did you find it when you were going there? Because it would have been quite um, isolated at that time. I loved it. I loved it because there was the sea and because there were horses and we could go out riding and it has a certain freedom and we could go, what were those things called? There was that huge beach and there were sand yachts. Billy Huggard, who was the, who was the hotel owner, he had these things called sand yachts. We'd go sand yachting and we'd go fishing. My mother was, oh, she was insane about the fishing. Not so much for the fishing, but because the ghillie would make tea and tea in a kettle, build a fire, and that tea she just became completely uh, addicted to. We'd go out and Daddy would fish too. Well, well, those those are other stories because his fishing was... Yeah, I heard a story that he wasn't great at the fishing. He he did a Charlie Chaplin, actually. I mean, he, he with fly fishing, he threw his rod and the... And the it, it, it hooked on his hat and took his hat off and he pretended that he'd done it on purpose. I remember what he did one night because in the hotel, everyone would display their fish every evening. There would be in the, in the hall, you'd put down the wonderful catch and then you'd put your name underneath this fantastic trout or this little salmon or whatever. And there was never anything that he'd fished. And so he finally he went into the kitchen and he opened a tin of sardines and he took a little sardine out and he put it in the hall and he put Charlie Chaplin. Chaplin starred in 35 films at Keystone, but bigger contracts and salaries were offered by the likes of Mutual Films and First National, the studio responsible for the six-reel masterpiece, The Kid. He was, he was up a mountain, and, you know, and there was snow there, and there were, the guards were after him, the, the police were after him, and he was in and out of, he was in and out of tunnels, and they used to come out in and out of their legs <laughs> and disappear, and they couldn't catch him. <laughs> It was so real, you know. We used to be in, in the hindsight in the, in the, in the cinema. That didn't show to him. They have all. That's the, the, the one I can remember most. Eric Murphy was just a teenager when Chaplin came to Waterville. It was in the, the 50s he came here. It be about 51 or 2, I suppose, we met him. Yeah, I was about 16, 17 at the time. I was serving my time down here in the garage, and... Um, the word came down that Charlie was coming down the village with the three daughters, Josephine, Annie and, and Geraldine. First encounter, you know, we watched him with the, with the sand yachting behind the beach. Which we, he was inside and he was, in, he was like a child inside and that himself. To and fro on the beach, like, with the wind and the, and the kids with him. He, he had such freedom, like, being the big star he was. I suppose he didn't, couldn't figure out how nobody was around him or taking any notes of him, like. He just was an ordinary person around the place and he loved that. He, he, was, he was a quiet man, very quiet on assuming. We'd been standing around looking at him. <laughs> it was the family I got to know years after, like. Someone said to me that you did some driving for him. Is that true? Yeah, well, I was driving the, the, I'd be driving the family, like. The family, I'd be driving the family around and looking after them when they're coming in to Cockley Airport, like, in Farm 4, bring them down and look after them. Then they'd be here for a month, like. There was a good story, and they were coming over from, um, from the beach, one day, and uh, there was this caravan stopped inside the road above with the the, the travelling, the tinkers, like we used to call them that time, and they were stopped inside the road with the the tent, and they sitting by the fire and stopped the car, he said. He went back and talked to them. And he, of course, gave them money, naturally, and so, yeah, that's what he gave them. 
And he came over to the cow and he said, don't forget, he says, you're that breed. You're the gypsy breed. Don't ever forget that your great-grandmother was a gypsy. <laughs> so I suppose that's what he got his, his t- trade from, was there, sir? Yeah. Did he ever speak of his Hollywood days? No, never spoke about it. I think he didn't want to. He was... <laughs> Nobody took any interest in it, like, you know, that kind of way. They never, they never pushed themselves on him, like, yeah. They were very quiet. They, you, you, they were like ourselves, and they're still that way, like. You know, they're, 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 they're fitted in, and they're fitting with the people. Like, one of was a lovely person. Yeah, a lovely person, yeah. And, and, they fitted in with the, 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 the community, like, and didn't bother anybody, nobody bothered him. He was like a postman up and down the village. <laughs> he was. He was, yeah. He was like a postman around the village. He'd take no notes of anything, just walk around and look around. Yeah, and admire the sea and all that stuff. We didn't really cherish him, you know, as much as we, we, we... You know, we did, like, but we didn't realise how famous he was really at that time. Like, we were so disconnected from the other side, of, from the world. Like, you know, you, radios were, were a novelty that time, which was a big thing to have a radio, like, to, like, have your rose race today. So we were so innocent, like, and... So the world is very small today, like. In 1917, Chaplin had a desire for more creative freedom, so he became an independent producer. To this end, he created his own studios. In 1919, Chaplin the pioneer found a new voice in cinema. Alongside Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks and D.W. Griffith, they incorporated United Artists, their own studio, to produce pictures. While Chaplin's brother Sidney handled all the business affairs, their innovation in taking control saw the development of film laboratories and a distribution network. It was a move to gain more control by artists who were changing the business by their very actions. I'm Robert Fawcett, the creative director of Fawcett's Ireland's National Circus. This may have been his holiday destination, but he lived, as you know, in Switzerland. And while he was in Switzerland, he forged very strong links with the National Circus over there, a family called Knie. And even his, his children still have that relationship with them, and they, they go to see them almost on an annual basis. So he always had that connection with circus. He, he knew where his roots were. As we started to research, we started to uncover a lot more about the man, and uh, not least that he actually worked for my ancestors in London. He worked for the Fawcett's, and then he worked with uh, the clown of that area in the family was funny Harry Fawcett. And actually, Chaplin accredited his comedic timing, the development of that to this funny Harry Fawcett, who was the clown of that era. So as we researched more, we found more and more out about the man, and in fact... His, his family history goes back to actually in Ireland somewhere, somewhere, actually around West Cork. He went to America. My great-grandfather went to America. He actually toured with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. He came back to Ireland. He decided to start up a circus here, a travelling entity. And, you know, just the similarities, like we have all that information, you know, we know when he went, when he came back, in, in much the same way Charlie Chaplin did. You know, a lot of, not a lot of people know that he, he travelled over with uh, Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy fame, you know, and just the more you delve in, the more things you find out about this man. He was quite remarkable. He always said, if I knew I was right, 
I was courageous and I could do anything. And he said, I'm a coward, but if I know I'm right, I have so much courage. And, I mean, such an artist there that he couldn't stand working for anyone else because he knew, he knew the right way to do it. And he also said, which I think is interesting, he said he would look at Russia's and that he would know what was wrong. And so he could shoot again. And he was always terrified that he might look at Russia's and see that something was wrong, but not know what it was. And he said, but all my life, I've always known what is wrong in a take, and I've always been able to correct it. The list of films produced and directed by Charles Chaplin boasts an impressive array of masterpieces. The Gold Rush from 1925, The Circus from 1928, City Lights, Modern Times, Limelight, and a film that threatened his very presence in the country that made him. The Great Dictator. I don't want to be a, an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. What was he like? What was he like as a father? He was a good father. I mean, he was, he was always there. A lot of fathers aren't there. He was always there because he was working. He was good. He was very strict, extraordinarily strict. You know, he was Victorian. He was born in 1889. Very, very strict, especially with his daughters. I remember he had one, I guess it was one spring, we were in Waterville, and my father got this bee in his bonnet that I was interested in this guy out to, on a fishing trip. And on the way back, guess what? There's only so many people can fit into the cars, and so the two youngest have to be left behind and walk towards the hotel. And suddenly, my father's car passes by with my father and my mother going on one of their drives. And he saw me walking along the street. And I mean, his worst nightmare come true. I went back to the hotel and I thought, what can I do? So I locked myself into the bathroom and I thought, well, I'm not coming out ever. And my father came here and he banged on the door. He said, you? I said, I'm not coming out. It's, it's a coincidence. I swear it's a coincidence. I thought, how stupid. I mean, he's found, he's found me with this guy, his worst nightmare. How can I explain to him that it's a coincidence? <laughs> I think I stayed in the bathroom for about a day and a half. And then I was sent home. It was no more than just any father being protective, is that? Or was he a little bit too protective? Well, he was, he was, uh, he was you know, he was a Victorian father and he was a very, he'd always liked very young girls. And I suppose he thought everyone did and he was worried about all his daughters. I mean, I had a bad time of it, and then, and then Josie, and she was a bit cleverer than I, and then Vicky had a terrible time, and, uh, I mean, we all went through it, except he got older, and so there was less passion. And did it lead to periods where you wouldn't talk? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were talking then, and my poor mother, I feel sorry for her, because she was always in the balance between the two. Describe your mother to me. My mother was the most extraordinary human being that has ever existed on this planet I think and uh, she, she really was she was beautiful she was unbelievably intelligent, incredibly funny she had the greatest sense of humour I mean, much more sense of humour than my father did and she was bright it's such a strange love story that my parents love story because she was uh, I guess 17 when she met him 
And he was an old, he was an old man. He was 50-something, 53. And everyone thought, oh, this will last, uh, you know, a couple of months, maybe a year. And she was so incredible. She took over immediately. She was the one person in the world that he, that he really respected. He respected her opinion. When he would write, or he would be writing a screenplay or his autobiography, he would bring in the proofs to her or what he'd written that day. Uh, what do you think of this, Una? And if she didn't like it, she would say so. And he would go berserk. He'd go insane with rage, slam the door, and come back, and it was corrected. And it would be because he knew she was so bright and so lovely. There was a place in Waterville where you could get these beautiful Irish tweeds, and she would buy all the colors and rolls of tweeds, and then she'd have them made into Chanel suits, into jackets for my father. I think my father was one of the first men ever to wear a pink tweed jacket, which I still have here, by the way. (laughs) They were always flirting, always. They were like teenagers in the back of a car. I mean, always flirting. In the evenings, he'd sit in his armchair and she'd sit on his lap or they'd both squeeze into the armchair. They were always holding hands. Always. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. I grew up in the 60s and in an age where you suddenly didn't really believe in, in, in love or in monogamy. It was such an example. It was such a great example. Foolish speeches and America's Cold War paranoia left Chaplin, the foreigner with liberal and humanist sympathies, a prime target for political witch hunters. The anti-communist pursuits of Republican US Senator Joseph McCarthy led to a Hollywood blacklist, and the name Charles Chaplin now became a headline on secret files kept at the FBI. In 1952, Chaplin left the US for the premiere of Limelight in London. At this point, the Immigration Department revoked his re-entry permit. On board the Queen Elizabeth with his wife and family, the chaplains watched as the towering skyline of New York and the vast continent of America disappeared on the horizon. The Chaplain Lounge is the front lounge of the Butler Arms and it's where they used to host afternoon tea in the evening, which would have been very big at the time, like every day there was afternoon tea there. And this lounge is dedicated to Chaplin. It has about six or seven photographs of him enjoying his time here with his family. I think it's it's nice to let people know that one of the first movie stars stayed in Waterville, in the village of Waterville, in the middle of the Ring of Kerry. They got to know a lot of the local people in the area as well, and they remained good friends with a lot of people, so that's why they kept coming back. And Josephine and Annie Chaplin both have houses in the area now. I suppose it's not hard to see why somebody who spent their life in the spotlight could be entranced by a place like this. The simple beauty of it, the ruggedness, the sand of the sea, constant when you're in the village of Waterville. When you pass the statue uh, down here in the middle of the village, well, what's your thoughts now? <laughs> in the winter time, I do feel sorry for him that he be perished in the cold. <laughs> because I do keep it clasping on in the bay view in the winter. And <laughs> I just come out in the bad night, gale and gale and rain, and the sun, you could pour Charlie across it, he'd be perished in the cold. <laughs> Chaplin made his new home in Switzerland. Filmmaking as an exile was a challenge. 
I think it was a good move. I think it was a good move that he left or that he was thrown out. And we went to Switzerland, I think, for all us. I mean, being brought up in Switzerland was probably a lot better than, than in Los Angeles. But it must have been tough. I think it must have been even tougher on my mother because she was so young. And she had all her girlfriends in the States. And everything that she was was an American-Irish girl. To be stuck in Switzerland, where she didn't speak the language, oh, that must have been really hard for her. He repeated, often said, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. He repeated, I'm not bitter, a little too often. In 1972, he made his one and only return to the United States. It was to accept an honorary Academy Award. Josephine and I were very much against him going back, and we didn't want him to go. We said, you know, you have to be true to your ideals. Don't go back. And he went back, and we were so wrong because it, did, it really gave him a new lease on life, and there he was getting that honorary Oscar and, and saying, oh, you lovely people to all those monsters. You lovely people, you lovely people. And he meant it. He meant it. For him to go back to America seemed like, oh, you know, you're copping out. Don't. But we were wrong. Josie and I were really wrong. We wanted to be proud of him because he didn't go back, because he would say no. The wonderful thing was, of course, that when he did go back, they gave my mother a visa saying, you know, multiple entries for three years or five years or whatever. And they gave my father one entry for 15 days. And he was thrilled. He said, they're still scared of me. <laughs> they're still scared of me. Charles Spencer Chaplin died in his sleep on Christmas Day, 1977. Well, he wasn't lost, because he's still alive. I mean, his, his films are alive, and he'd, it was, he, he, he slowly sort of flickered out. It wasn't a sudden death. He died on Christmas, which was really quite amusing, because he always hated Christmas so much. He'd go into this deep melancholy. My mother would have this opulence of presents for everyone, and he would just sit in the corner and say, I used to get a, an orange on good years. And so it was wonderful, because everyone was woke up on Christmas morning and the, for the grandchildren, Grandpa died and they were like, ooh, does that mean we can't open the presents? <laughs> so he had that last uh, wonderful irony of dying on Christmas Day, which is perfect. This August, the village of Waterville will hold the first annual Charlie Chaplin Comedy Film Festival. It's a deep recognition for a man that held their village close to his heart. We're an old village and we're just hoping that we're trying to get together, especially in these tough times, to kind of bring people to Waterville and let them know how beautiful it was and maybe enjoy it the way the Chaplin family enjoyed it when they came here. The film festival is just a wonderful, wonderful idea, and the idea of having a sort of comedy film festival is just, they've hit the nail on the head, and I wish them every sort of uh, wish to sort of, I hope it sort of carries on for eternity. I think it's a great thing to resurrect him. It's a great thing for the village and for, the, for Ireland alone, because it is international, like I presume. Yeah, and Fass is coming down as well, which is lovely as well, like. They're coming into it as well, which is great. The versatility of the man is often underestimated. 
He produced and directed countless movies. He was the star of over 80 films, the author of four books and all his film scripts. He composed music all his life and wrote a number of chart hits. He played a variety of musical instruments, and all the music in this documentary is the work of Charles Chaplin. They were such happy times. They were such happy times, yes. I, I must say, I say both my father and my mother were incredible romantics. And Waterville's a place for romantics, I can tell you. I have images of my mother and father walking along the sea and hearing the gulls and the wind. Oh, it was so, so romantic. I think myself, no, he did put Waterville on the map and I think it was a, a great asset to the place because it did boost it. I know people were coming here over the years and they were very much aware of it, but he, he really sort of spoke highly of it, I suppose, everywhere he went and it did encourage more people to come. And so Clint had got his autograph and plus his picture now and my small little box camera. Oh, <laughs> so that's it now. I suppose there is, there is a lot of regrets, like that we didn't get to know him better. You know, there is really a lot of regrets. If we could have brought him down to the football field and maybe kick a football with him or something like that, because we were all football here that day, like, we'd love to have done that, like, with him. I think he felt comfortable there because he wasn't bothered by people, and yet he did know that everyone knew who he was, and he had an audience. My father was always best when he had an audience, and yet... They weren't annoying him. Everyone was just grateful for his presence, and he was grateful for their presence. And I think it was a perfect, there was perfect harmony there. For me, the image of the little tramp has always signified something special in cinema history. And it's lovely to think that the man behind this iconic figure will be smiling forever in the heart of Waterville. The man I knew was portly and white-haired, very handsome still, but he looked nothing like the man that we'd see in the movies who had this black hair and this little moustache and dressed differently. There was always a definite separation between the two. And uh, Charlie Chaplin was my father and uh, the tramp was my hero and still is. <laughs> <laughs>